Hey everybody, I'm uh, David Garbett. Welcome to another episode of O2 and You. It's your favorite time of the week, I know. And I'm very excited about our guest today, Athelia CK. Hi. Wooly Lesur, mm -hmm. welcome. Hi. Great having you here. We've got uh, an action-packed day. We're gonna have a conversation um, about air quality. We're actually talking about air quality in a way um, that is really about the kind of the personal toll and how that um, affects things. I mean, there's a lot that we could discuss with you on on the show, um, but that's the topic for today. So really appreciate you joining us. And uh, be here. like I said, just before we logged on, I was uh, complimenting UCK on the, the background there, much better than my drab background here. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I'm in our playroom right now. I think as many of you are working from home, you understand um, Zoom meetings in disparate places in your homes. And this is our playroom. And this is some of our children's lovely art. You can see it up. <laughs> um, so yeah, welcome. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so CK, maybe right off the bat, um, inquiring minds want to know, should we put this rumor to rest? You are uh, responsible for Tan France's success. Is this, <laughs> do I have that right? I would love to take responsibility for Tan France's success. Um, I really can't, but I can pretend I can't. I sold my company to him a little over four years ago. The company was, a, it's called Shabby Apple and I did that for about 10 years. And then I sold it to him at the end of 2016, like actually beginning of 2017. And he did that um, for a little bit. And then he actually in turn then sold it so that he could become very famous as we all know, so. <laughs> all right. That's... But yes, I will take I will take credit for his success. Like okay. I said, I'm sure it's all me. That's the upshot, that's the upshot. Yes. What have you done since uh, you sold Chabby Apple? So I was pregnant with my third child when I sold and then I had that child and now I have four children and um, I do some small real estate things on the side, but mostly I just run a circus, which is our house. I, the feeling is shared. I get that. Yes. Did you start Shabby Apple when you were still in school? I started right after. Well, yeah, no, I did actually. We started a little bit in 2006, kind of before I graduated from graduate school and then um, I did it until through 2016. So yeah. Okay. Wow. And now you're ringmaster. Now I'm ringmaster. Yes. Ringmaster. Um, tell us about, you grew up in the Salt Lake Valley. I did. I grew up in Holiday. I went to Olympus High School. Oh, okay. Um, once a Titan, always a Titan. You're back in the neighborhood now? Yes. As in, actually, I live next door to where I grew up. So very much so. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. It is great. It's re It's really great. Um, when did you come back? So you left Utah for college, for graduate school, came back. Uh, how long after you finished school did you come back? I came back a couple times, but I came back when I met you um, originally, it's kind of, let's see, 2006. And then I moved back to New York, I think in 2009 and stayed there for a long time. And then I moved back again. I met my husband there and then we moved back together um, right when I sold my company in 20, for the most part, we moved back briefly there for about a year, but um, 
for the final time we moved back in 2017, beginning of 2017. But I spent about a year and a half there kind of in the middle, which is what we'll be talking about today when my first experience here when I had my oldest. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that because we have maybe to, to preface this conversation a little bit. You know, when I started O2 Utah, I ran into actually, but we have kids who were in gymnastics together and I ran into you and you're very enthusiastic about what I was working on. Uh, and we talked about air quality and how disappointed you were with uh, the poor air quality here in the Valley. And you're, you know, you've lived in a lot of places. Uh, you've been in some big cities and um, I've lived in some of those same cities and it's still remarkable to me that, you know, coming back to this place that I grew up, just like you, the place you grew up, you come back to a place that has the worst air quality. And this was something that I, you know, when we had that initial conversation could tell you really felt strongly about, let's kick it off from there. Why, you know, why is this yeah, important? I was you? horrified. I was horrified. So the only other places I'd lived, um, I moved to Northern California, San Francisco area for a long time. Then I moved to New York city and in, in and I spent a year in London and London is supposed to have horrible air quality. And none of those major cities are in anywhere close to the quality that we have in Salt Lake city, which I think is absolutely asinine. I think it's, it, I think it's, it, I think it's absolutely terrible. So, um, yeah. And so then when I moved here, it was, I think 2013 or 2014. I remember I moved here. I lived here about a year and a half because my husband and I were doing our business together here. We opened some stores here. So we were um, living partially here in Salt Lake City and then partially in New York City too. So, um, and I had a daughter who was one at the time. She was my oldest. She's nine now. And, um, and I remember she was having, she just had a cold. She just had a little bit of a cold. And one night it was, she was coughing and coughing all night. And then she started not being able to breathe. And then she was not breathing better. And then she was... <gasps> And um, around 3 or 4 a.m., I had to rush her to the emergency room. Um, it was really scary. I remember my husband at the time was in New York City working. And um, I think my mom came with me. And they had to quickly inject her with um, steroids to get her breathing again. It was really, really scary. It was still to this day one of the scariest moments of my life. And as I remember, I can't remember the exact timeline because it's been many years, but that happened again when my husband was around too. Um, so I remember it was a two months later, um, but it was in the middle of the night. So we were all very tired and very stressed out. Um, we had to bring her to the middle of the, to the hospital in the middle of the night because she couldn't breathe. And um, even on the way there, it was so bad. She, and it was right during the inversions. Both of those times were during the worst inversions. So then I took her to the pediatrician about it. The pediatrician diagnosed her with asthma. And I started doing research. And I learned some interesting things that um, he was telling me that we have one of the worst air qualities in the entire country, which I think is just absolutely tragic and unnecessary. Um, he was telling me, too, that, um, that the air quality massively affects, not only affects asthma, but is highly correlated with high rates of asthma, um, which I thought was really interesting. Now I grew up here. I also was born for my six, first six years of life. I lived in Orem. And now at the time when yeah. I was, this is a long time ago, I'm old, but at the time, <laughs> Geneva Steel was in Orem. And so, um, 
that was a massive polluter. Now I have really bad asthma and that asthma is actually called some pretty major health problems, some other like secondary conditions in my life that has really affect, affected my life. And so it's interesting that here I have this asthma. I've had asthma because of Geneva steel, which no longer ex exists, but now I live in the Salt Lake Valley and we still have the same problem. And now my child is having the same problem because we're not cleaning up our air like we should. Um, so that, that really tried, that for me was a catalyst to get me involved, both learning what was going on and then also trying to figure out how to help change it. Yeah, I, you know, a few questions. One that just sounds terrible. I can't imagine how scary that was for you. I remember at one point with my oldest, <clears throat> she had been sick for a while and we took her into uh, the clinic and she didn't have asthma. It was not quite such a critical situation as what you're talking about, but uh, they did want to do a test for it. And they had her, uh, they connected her to this you know, respiration tube. And I remember seeing that photo and briefly thinking like, oh, have I, you know, have I done this to my child by living here in this place that is so polluted? And that's really, um, and I want to talk about this a little bit more because we, again, we both grew up here and you affected even more than me, but I think it's been, you know, this is one of the things that I find challenging, especially for people who've been here for a long time. It's like, yeah, I know this is terrible. I know it's not good for you, but hey, I'm here today. I'm making do like whatever, you know, having it affect uh, your child really kind of was for me a wake-up call it sounds like for you was a wake-up call in a way that just I feel like is your own personal somehow, story didn't do you connect. ever feel like we're kind of like the frog that's been boiled like mm -hmm. we're used to it and so we feel like that's just the way it is and then we leave or even if you don't leave you come back and at some point something can joshua for me it was my daughter almost dying and thinking why are we doing this this is yeah. absurd yeah. That, whereas before I feel like as a teenager and things we got, I got so used to it that I was like that dying frog just slowly being boiled by our terrible air. It's, and you and I had this conversation earlier about how, you know, one statistic that is, if you stop and think about it, it is incredibly astounding. And it's the likelihood that if you live in the Wasatch, if you live on the Wasatch front, you're probably going to lose somewhere around two years of life on average because of it. And I hear that stat, you hear that stat, and it's like, ah, that's way down the road. Yeah, and it's like the difference between 95 and 97, which at this age doesn't, I don't think about it as much, right? <laughs> right, and it's, it's kind of hard, but I think a lot of that does have to do with that boiled frog syndrome. And again, there's something immediate, like having your child placed at risk and, and where you told me that, you know, a stat that you heard that was really um, kind of got you out of that, got you out of the pot, so to speak, was a study that was done here, looking at rates of miscarriage for these brief pollution events. Again, just when we have these spikes, when we have these inversions and um, particulates accumulate and what the team of doctors found was that the rates of miscarriage uh, spike as well. And uh, you know, looking at other things that cause miscarriage, the crazy thing is that it's actually more risky for a pregnant woman to be here than it is to use 
cocaine in terms of the risk to miscarriage. And that is astounding. This is so horrifying to me. I mean, it is truly so horrifying. Can you repeat that again? Because I think everyone needs to hear this. And I think everyone in the state needs to understand this. Yeah, just that, you know, you're the rates of miscarriage for being here. Again, this is during brief pollution spikes. So we're not talking about a cumulative where you're in dirty air for, for a year. It's these brief events where pollution goes up, results in higher rates of miscarriage than uh, studies that they've done on the effect of cocaine use during pregnancy. Pretty crazy. I'm a mother of four children. I would never do cocaine. I wouldn't even take <laughs> Tylenol when I'm pregnant. I mean, honestly, I am so careful with my children. And to think that as a state, we're not cleaning up our air. And so we are inflicting, you know, and I realize it's for those brief periods, but most of us are pregnant at least a little bit during those inversion times. We're inflicting the same amount of toxicity that cocaine would. That makes no sense. Yeah, I, it, you know, it's crazy. One other thought I had while I was listening to your story is, you know, this is a problem that we've known for, we've known about for a while. In fact, you talked about being, uh, can we call you part of the graduating class of the Geneva Steel Pollution? Yes, and you can totally call me that. That is there was great, There was an academic down at BYU who uh, back in the 80s, Geneva Steel shut down temporarily. And he said, hey, this is interesting because one day it was operating and the next day it wasn't. It's like a natural experiment. And I wonder what happened to hospital admissions. I wonder how this is affecting rates of asthma. And he was looking at people just like you back in Utah Valley in the 80s. Geneva's still on, Geneva's still off. And what he found is you can just look at hospital admissions and track not only with asthma, but with heart attacks, um, you can see this effect on the health of the community based on whether or not they were polluting. And this was kind of what led him to do this extensive series of studies uh, in the United States in a few different cities. He teamed up with some researchers at Harvard and other places and became really the foundational study for our current pollution um, limits on fine particulates. The thing that ends up causing these problems, causing asthma, causing increased rates of um, heart attacks, was born out of that observation that he made of Geneva still. And yet, over all of this time, like you said, there's still, you know, we're not, I, I feel like we still haven't seen political leadership grapple with this. But let's talk a little bit about how, when you went through this experience, I think two things. One, did it, what did it make you do in your personal life? How did it affect you? What, you know, how has it set you on a about, different trajectory? Um, I started reading about this and I, I got air filters for every room, which is not cheap. And I think that's not fair that we're trying that Utahns to have to breathe air, have to buy air filters. I mean, that's, that's a heavy cost to, I think, just for all Utah citizens, or at least most of us that are on the Wasatch Front. Um, and I also started reading about indoor air pollution and I, we got plants in every room. In fact, it was life-changing for me because I'm a total black thumb. Up until then, I have never <laughs> kept a plant alive in my entire life. Like I can't even keep a bouquet of roses alive for more than a day in my house. So this was amazing. But yeah, we have plants in every room now. Um, and then we just started trying to think of things that we could do as a family to help. 
we obviously are involved with your organization, which I really care about and, and we support. We've also done things like gotten, um, gotten solar panels on our roof. I mean, I realize that's somewhat kind of peripheral, peripherally related, but yeah, we did that. And we um, are just in the process now of changing our cars. We have two cars, both, neither of them are high polluters, but neither of them are electric either. And so we're just in the process of purchasing electric cars. We've also con convinced my parents to purchase electric cars, which if you know my parents is, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. I think that we have this kind of false dichotomy in our state thinking, okay, you're a blue person or you're a red person. And if you're branded blue, you're going to do this. And if you're branded red, you're going to do this rather than saying, Hey, electric cars are actually good for everyone. So let's all drive electric cars the most that we can. And those that can't afford it, how can we help them afford it? Like not, I want to, I'm blue, so I'm going to do this or I'm red. So I'm going to do this. And I, um, so I've tried to get involved those ways, just on a personal level. Um, and then I've really kind of become um, informed by all these organizations, your organization and some of the other organizations that send out a lot of information um, just about our, our current year. It's, it's been really interesting, actually. You, uh, it's been just, I appreciated hearing about your story, both on you know steps that you took at home how has that affected having, you know, air purifiers and plants? Does this reduce the rate of uh, kind yes. of asthmatic attacks that your daughter is having? Absolutely. She has not been to the emergency room in years. I can't remember even the last time she's nine now. So it's been many, many years. And she has not had to use her inhaler for, I, I, we have one, but she hasn't had to use it. And we have to be careful, but it's massively affected her. So that's been a really good and we're really careful on bad air days. What do you, yeah, careful. when you say that, what does that mean? What do you do on bad air days to keep her um, from, from having problems? I don't have, I don't let her play outside, obviously, which is really sad. Um, I try to have the school um, keep her inside. One thing that's been happening that I have contacted her school about, and my daughter has gone to a different school and I've contacted both schools about it, is, you know, children, We ha when we have really bad air days and then you go pick them up from school and there's all these cars lined up and the children are outside breathing in the admissions of not only the inversion but all the bad air that is just exacerbating the inversion and i was reading some studies about how this is affecting children's lungs and it's really bad every single day they're standing out there for 20 minutes 15 minutes and most of you mothers that have school-aged kids know what i'm talking about that's really scary and so i've tried to have um schools talk about please you know be idle free um like anything else we can do mostly just turn off your cars because i know i'm waiting in the line for 10 minutes i just turn my car off and i try to ask the schools to ask other people to turn their car off that's easy that's an easy thing to do um it's interesting though i think my husband's from los angeles and we were talking actually last night about this how when um and he's in his 40s and so he was there in the 80s and he talked about you could never see the mountains um, mm. It was so bad you could never see the mountains. And my mother grew up there. And my grandfather, who never smoked a day in his life, actually died of lung cancer, mm. which makes sense. He spent 50 years of his life in Los Angeles. But what's really cool is that my husband was talking about how when he goes and visits Los Angeles now, you can see the mountains. And it's so different. And it's not because Los Angeles lost people. It's because of their emissions rules. And it's just actually really inspiring that there are things that we can do to clean up our air. I, we're where Los Angeles was maybe 40 years ago, um, but we can be where Los Angeles is now 
and not many years if we just make a decision to do it. And it's cool to think all those millions of children in Los Angeles that now have cleaner air to breathe. So that was really inspiring to kind of, we just barely had this discussion. My mother-in-law's in town and we had this discussion. Um, it was it was really inspiring to know that. It is a pretty cool story about LA and that they've, they've done that. And, you know, when I've talked to policymakers here, and I want to talk to you about this now, tell them that the way that we approach air quality in, in Utah is a bit like um, building a highway, but then not painting uh, any, not putting any lanes on the roadway, not putting any speed limits. And when the chaos ensues, what policymakers do is just say like, well, let's, you know, let's appeal to people and say, please drive nicely. Well, you've set everybody up for, sell, up, up for failure. And I think we all do need to take those personal steps. I actually think the strongest reason for us to do things like what you've laid out, the, the solar panels, the electric car, is that it's too hard to live with yourself when you know that you're creating these impacts if you don't take those personal steps. But for us to really clean this air, we need policymakers to come in and paint those lanes and put in those speed limits. We actually have to say, hey, here's a big problem. We as a community need to resolve this and we can't just expect everybody to take a step to, you know, to solve this on their own, because at the end of the day, you know, when, when there are no lanes on the road and there are no speed limits, everybody's kind of individual incentive is to do something that doesn't benefit the group. So I agree. And I think it's not even, I, I think it's not even so much that, cause I think most people are not selfish. I think most people want to do the right thing, but they don't have the guideposts. So we don't understand is normal citizens, we don't understand exactly what we're doing and how it affects everyone else. And so, yeah, when you have a lane, like let's say you're trying to be a good driver, you don't know which side to go on. You don't know when to pass, you don't know the speed limit, you don't have stoplights. You're trying to be a decent driver. It's really hard to be a decent driver with no parameters. So yeah, we need those. And then there's also the 2% of drivers who without those laws, are going to be selfish. And the problem is, is those 2% of the drivers are gonna wreak havoc for everyone else. And that <laughs> happens as well. I feel like that's mm -hmm. happening in exactly what's happening in the Washout Sprints too. There's a small percentage um, of businesses and you know other, et cetera, that take advantage of not having the laws. And so they ruin it for the rest of us. I also think that those are usually the businesses that are the best in politics and they've learned how to well, keep Well, yeah, they have to be way. because, yeah. right, right. So right, you, which isn't fair to the rest of us. Let's talk a little bit about the political front, because this, again, is also something that I know you, you feel strongly about for us to tackle air quality. And you mentioned it here. It can't be a red issue. It can't be a blue issue that we have to get involved with both Republicans and Democrats. Um, tell us a little bit more about your involvement on the political front. Yeah. So I'm a Republican. I've been a lot of different things. I've been many shades of many different things at different times in my life. Um, which I'm happy about. I feel like it's because I grow and I change and my uh, my viewpoints change, but I'm a Republican. And the thing that's really frustrating to me is I feel like sometimes there's this closed-minded sense that if you were a Republican, you also should be driving a Hummer and that you're gonna change your fuel filters or whatever that is to like be the most polluting you can possible. And I don't- You're gonna roll coal, huh? Yeah, <laughs> like, I feel like what's happening is there's this ideology of, of having to be purist like just because I believe in one tenet of this specific party, then I have to believe, support all these things. And I don't think that's correct. I think air quality does not have to be a Republican or Democrat issue. What I think the issue is, it's the majority versus the minority who are profiting off the health of the majority. 
excuse me, the lack of health of the majority. So that has to be the issue. The issue should not necessarily be the Democrats are going to be the environmentalists against the business Republicans. I think that's a false dichotomy. I think what needs to happen is that most of 99% of us that are suffering from bad air quality need to say to our state legislature, frankly, who um, are allowing the 1%, even less than 1% of co mostly companies and policymakers who benefit financially off of our bad air, um, the 99% of us need to say, that's not okay. We're suffering for your financial benefit. Like, and I feel like the role of government is to protect the majority against the powerful minority. And that's not happening in our state right now. Yeah, and I, again, this sounds like, uh, this may sound simplistic, but I think that's really where we are. My assessment in this state is that for all of us that feel so disconcerted about where air quality is, there are a few entities that benefit from this and the fact that they can, um, you know, they continue to profit when air quality is bad and they show up and they're very effective at lobbying. They're very effective at finding candidates and supporting them and providing just any explanation that those candidates then need to say like, you know, everybody wants clean air, but there's nothing we can do about it. And it allows the system to persist. And, you know, with many of these diffuse problems, the concentrated benefits, like they're putting in all of that effort and the rest of us are not getting involved. And, and really like what you've said, I think, is our critical task and it's letting our state legislators know this is something that needs to be addressed that we have a problem i don't care if you're a democrat or you're a republican like my kid is sick i'm sick because of where we are with air quality please do something about this and it really is hearing from people that are doing that and i have to say you know as somebody who's got a lot on her plate very accomplished you in our previous conversations i think you've um you, you don't give yourself proper credit for what a difference you're making in your efforts to do outreach. Um, and you've, I've seen you do things like you've spread the word to others and said, here's an issue that's important. We've just talked about what you're doing at your school uh, to try and get idle free pickups. Um, I know your involvement with O2 Utah, you've connected me with others who are interested in what we're doing. Um, if as I would say, if you know, one tenth of the people out there that feel this way about air quality would take the steps that you're taking, we would, um, we'd outpace LA. We'd be able to really make a difference on this front. And um, it's interesting because I wrote I my legislatures about it. It did not take. I mean, I've written them. It takes honestly ten seconds. <laughs> it's really easy to write your state representatives. Like it's just really easy. Doesn't hard. We have two of them. You have a senator and a, you know, you represent it. Like it, it took me 30 seconds and they both actually replied and were really respectful. And I think we're open to what I had to say. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, I think, I think what happens is a lot of us in the 99% feel helpless in this area, even though we're not. One thing you also, um, that I'd love to talk about just briefly here is, and we've had this conversation with others, there are many elections in the state of Utah where the only vote that matters is in a Republican primary. And I know lots of people have feelings about the Republican party itself, whether they think they agree or they don't agree. I wish 
everyone could just set that aside and take a purely transactional view, selfish view of what do I want to happen in my state? What do I want to do with air quality? And if you have that view, I can guarantee that you live somewhere in this state where at some point you will benefit, even if briefly, from registering as a Republican and participating in their primary. Um, I did that, as I think we spoke about, I did that in our congressional primary. I registered as a Republican. Um, I wanted John Curtis to win. I didn't want the other candidate to win. I felt like John Curtis was the better candidate. So I registered as a Republican and he won. And I think that was a, I feel good about that decision. There are a lot of things in the Republican party I absolutely do not agree with. Um, but I did really, I and I did and I do support John Curtis, especially over the other candidate um, that he was running against. So yeah, I think that's a pragmatic approach. I think people yeah. have this like purest idea that if you belong to this one party, you have to agree with everything that they do and all of their leaders. I do not at all. Um, but there's certain issues that you do care about and you can vote according to those issues in a way yeah, that's going you know, one, to further those issues in a pragmatic way. One thing I'd say about John Curtis is that if we take the issue like climate, um, Republicans in Congress have set a pretty low bar on this front, but one of the representatives in Congress speaking the most about climate change from the Republican party is John Curtis. And, right. uh, you know, somebody else in that seat, I'm, I'm skeptical that all of the lobbying in the world would have resulted in a more aggressive uh, pro-climate rep. So John Curtis has a ways to go. Let's get him to, to take some more serious action, but um, he's certainly out farther. And a lot of that goes back to this Republican primary, exactly like what we were talking about and, and that pragmatic view that you had of knowing what hand we're dealt with in Utah and how best to affect that. It was interesting because we were discussing, I actually had, we had a mutual friend that she was the one that actually really, because I was in John Curtis's district, she was not. Um, she was the one that kept texting me, have you registered? Have you registered? <laughs> and <laughs> in a nutshell, think, how, would, how would you describe her political leanings? <laughs> um, maybe the most liberal person I know. She's <laughs> much more liberal than I am. But I thought that was interesting because she's pragmatic too. She was like, John Curtis is going to be a much better representative for things that I personally believe is specifically in environment. And she does too. So why be a purist and just hate John Curtis? So that was really funny. So her, her reasoning is very similar to yours, Dave. So yeah. I'll expect that this video will play at some point in the Republican legislature when they take even more <laughs> steps to prohibit the general population from participating in Republican primaries. I know. But, oh, I know. Uh, until then, we'll continue <laughs> yeah. to participate in elections, mm -hmm. which apparently right. are part of the foundation of democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, well, CK, I really appreciate chatting with you. Is there anything, any last thoughts or any last thing you wanted to say on this topic? No, I'm just, I'm really happy about what you're doing. I think O2 is really fabulous and I'm so happy someone's doing it. We sincerely um, appreciate your support and what you're doing. You are making a difference on this front and I really, um, you know, we're excited to keep going on this and to work on uh, concrete proposals for how we will improve the air here in the Valley and pushing our uh, senators and representatives to make that happen. So awesome. CK, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, those of you who been watching. I'm your host, David Garbett. This is another episode of O2 and You. If you'd like to learn more about O2 Utah and the work we're doing, we have a website, 
o2utah.org and we're on the socials as well. So until next time, goodbye everyone.